1: A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart.
2: And I'm Gary Bain. And
3: together
1: we're Pete and Gary's Military History
3: Podcast.
2: Hello, hello and welcome to uh, the podcast. A, A rather sad occasion today. I'm here with Peter Hart, that's always quite sad. And I'm Gary Bain, and today, Pete, today, today is the last in the series on the Arras Air War. It's a tra- tragic day for us, and this is uh, entitled May End Game.
3: Ooh, May End Game. <laughs> may, yeah, May, End May, my game be end. <laughs> well, it's yeah, it's the end. So where where are we? It's uh, it. it what, what what's happening is that on the first of May, Hague. General Sir Douglas Haig, Commander BEF, orders General Sir Edward Allenby. Edmund. Edmund. Did I say Edward again? I've done that a thousand times. Uh, which army is he in charge of, Gary? Uh,
2: Third Army. That's
3: right. And Hubert Gough. Fifth Army. Oh, you forget. And uh, Henry Home. Uh,
2: First Army. Henry Horne, isn't it?
3: Oh, what is that with me? To, to, told you I couldn't see. <laughs> Might be something to do with the weekend's activities. <laughs> so, what did he order them to do? Well, well, um, he orders them to launch an immediate offensive starting on the 3rd of May. And, and, uh, what, what springs to your mind? Any big project, what springs to your mind? 1st of May is ordered. To start on 3rd May. Come on, Gary, you can do this. What is it? What is it, Gary? What is it that you think when you're told that? Well, it's two
2: days, so not enough time to prepare.
3: Yeah, it's ridiculous, isn't it? Um, Why is Haig doing this?
2: Well, he, he really didn't have any choice if the French army was to survive as a meaningful force in the field. Just as the Royal Flying Corps had had to make sacrifices for the Common Cause in April... Now in May, the British Army must fight what would be known as the Third Battle of the Scarp and the Second Battle of Bullecourt for the overall greater good of the Allied Powers. We said this before.
3: Yeah, the French mutinies are serious. I'm not sure anyone quite knew how it is. I'm not sure the Germans knew. Always found that strange. They never heard that was you know. Uh, It's just got to happen, though. Uh, The the, the British don't have a lot of of, of choice. So what does this mean? New offensive? What does that mean for the Royal Flying Corps?
2: Well, for the umpteenth time, the reconnaissance aircraft and artillery observation aircraft took to the skies. But one thing had changed. What's that, Gary? What? What had changed? Well, at long last, the much-delayed RE-8s were beginning to arrive in an ever-increasing stream. Uh, Though, of course, all the BE-2s couldn't be replaced
3: overnight. No no so it, but, but they're coming on so they've been coming on stream for so long that they' are actually fairly obsolescent by the time they arrive they they haven't really in my view got the maneuverability and and uh speed and the rest of it required uh in in the arid skies they're pretty dangerous skies, aren't they um but uh what's the difference do you think? In the end, between the RE8 and the BE2C. Well, the Be RE8's eight.
2: certainly faster and more powerful than any of the BE2s.
3: Yeah. And another thing is, when a new plane arrives, everybody always calls it a spinning, oh, rubbish. it's a rubbish, rubbish, death, no, trap. death trap. But usually that's just people, the, the pilots getting used to a new, uh, new aircraft. Uh, and the other thing is, if you're giving up something you understand and you know everything about, you understand the faults, how to. Over- you're looking at me as if you're thinking of giving me up. <laughs> <laughs> you start um, like giving up, an old friend. <laughs> um, but at least you know and understand it. The b o t c you knew it was shit, but you knew you—you you, you sort of had a modus operandi, Gary. A modus operandi.
2: Is that French? <laughs> <Lacky>. <laughs> <laughs> meanwhile new plans were under development to try and increase the effectiveness of scout attacks on the german kite balloons that still provided them with observation over much of the aris battlefield Now, so why is this a problem why are kite balloons a problem well as ever the balloons are defended by an interlinked combination of anti-aircraft batteries machine guns flaming onions there's nothing worse than fire to an onion and throwing it at an aircraft <laughs> oh i thought that's something you could get a cream for Wow. Uh, and lurking German scouts, <laughs> lurking German scouts. Uh, with a new phase in the offensive looming, it was once again vital to put out these unblinking German eyes that why peered do I, down on the why British do we preparations. Call it, um, why do we call it unblinking? Well, because it's always there. Um, now, we've said before they can't be everywhere because there, there just wasn't enough of them. But they, they were out trying to do
3: exactly the same as the british were trying to do and the thing about kite blunts is they don't have to go down and refuel they're just up there they're always there They're always
2: there unless you do something about them Ooh. so what's the plan what are they going to do about them well major leonard tilney who was commanding 40 squadron he came up with a plan to subvert these defenses by making a concerted low-level attack now, his squadron, they
3: begin a, a period of intensive training. Uh, <laughs> first, they don't know why they're doing it, and, and nobody tells them. And you're going to be one of the great heroes of the, the Royal Flying Corps, uh, but who's still an enjoy. Uh he, He's new to the game. Is that Lane? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, that's French. <fringe. laughs> and uh, you're going to be 2nd lieutenant Edward Mannock, Who's in
2: Tilney's 40 squadron? A new game is being evolved. It comprises the act of rushing all out, and by all out, is meant opening the engine throttle to its fullest power around houses, chimneys, barracks, tents, hills and valleys, trees and telegraph poles at a height from the ground of anything less than 10 feet. Blimey, 10 feet. Sorry, that's me. (laughs) Manic goes on. Nothing more exciting could be imagined, and when one considers the speed of these machines, just guess what it means. Well, I'm
3: guessing (laughs) the word brown trousers would follow on if we had to do it. It sounds terrifying to me.
2: Ten feet, Pete. Ten feet. (laughs) You're nearly ten feet
3: tall, aren't you? No. (laughs) But I know what you mean. Well, what's this roof in here? Eight feet? It's ridiculous. It's terrifying. And what what happens if you don't
2: see something? (laughs) Now, Manik, he flew on the second of the missions, and he goes on to say, Went over the line from north of Arras to five miles behind the German trenches at a height of less than 15 feet, attacking Hun balloons. Six of us, Captain Nixon, Hall, Scudamore, Redler, Parry and myself, All except the captain returned safely, but with machines almost shot to pieces. Hall crashed on home aerodrome, as did Scudamore. Parry crashed just outside of the lines at Canadian headquarters. Redler crashed at Savvy, but returned here later and damaged his machine on landing. I was the only one to return properly to the aerodrome and made a perfect landing. We got all our objectives. My fuselage had bullet holes in it, one very near my head. And the wings were more or less riddled. I don't want to go through such an experience
3: again. Well, and I don't blame him. Uh, but, I mean, he's a thoughtful chap. And uh, I think he can... T- <laughs> St- balloon busting was always regarded as the most dangerous of all the aerial pursuits, if you like. There's nothing more dangerous. Now, the last major offensive, this is the Battle of Arras. The Battle of Arras. Of the Battle of Arras uh, so the third Battle of Scar, starts on the 3rd of May. The first... Third and Fifth Armies all go over the top on a sixteen-mile front, spreading from Vimy, Vimy Ridge to Bullecourt. Um, is this like the uh, the ninth of April? Is it like the 9th of April? Is it, Gary? Is well, not it?
2: at all, because the lack of time in making the preparation it proved a fatal handicap. The British artillery bombardment was frankly inadequate. The counter battery arrangements skimped. Most of the assaulting troops were not fresh. Those that were had had no chance to practice or assimilate their orders. Worst, worst of all, worst, worst, worst of all, the German defensive positions and wire were mostly intact and garrisoned by largely fresh divisions of equal numbers. Oh
3: God! So let, let's let's put it simply. Uh, 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 what would you say the scene was set for?
2: Dun dun dun! Disaster. It could not have been more different from the precision planning, careful preparation and annihilation bombardment that had brought such a dramatic success on the 9th of April. And this is what Sergeant Jack Cousins of the 7th Bedfordshire and Hertfordshire Regiment says.
3: Our orders didn't get through until the last minute, and then they were all garbled. No one, including our officers, seemed to know what we were supposed to be doing, or where we were going. Officers were supposed to have synchronised their watches in so far as it was possible at that time of day. At a certain time, our barrage was supposed to lift, and we were to climb out of the trenches and go forward. Well, we did, but it wasn't all at the same time. We were given false information and told the artillery had smashed the uh, enemy defences and we would get through the wire. Did we, Ellis? Like,
2: so that was that was the northern platoon of the Bedfordshire and Hertfordshire Regiment.
3: Well, you're always going on and on about me being born in Luton. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Now one exception was on the
2: northern flank where the Canadians, Say, northern, <laughs> managed a small advance at terrible cost to take the village of Fresnoy, whilst alongside them the thirty first division, pushed towards Oppie Wood.
3: Now, the only other success was made by the Australians of Goth's 5th Army, uh, who managed to get a small lodgement of troops through the German lines. Uh, What do you think the Germans did? uh, Small lodgement? What what should we do now, says the German High Command?
2: Well, as always, the Germans threw in numerous counter-attacks, and this... uh tactically insignificant gain that provoked so much suffering was not finally secured for another two weeks of the murderous attritional fighting that became the second battle of Bullecourt,
3: Which which, you know, is a, a still uh well, the the Australians are not happy about the whole thing, are they are they? Now uh in a fighting in the northern area, uh, the Sopwith one and a half Strutters our favourites. <laughs> not the one and a half inch Strutter, then. No, no not the one and a half inch Strutters. Our favourite aircraft, the best ever name that's ever been given to any aircraft. Uh, they're they're, uh, they're given something new to do, something new. What was that?
2: Well, they were expected to try to assist the uh, struggling infantry. Counterattack patrols flying low down behind the captured positions to report immediately on German preparations for counterattacks, then do
3: their utmost to hold them back. Well, you're going to be Major Sholto D- Douglas. Now, he commands 43 Squadron RFC. What does he say? We flew at heights varying
2: from 50 to 300 feet, shooting up and bombing scattered parties of the enemy troops, trench positions, and transport. On one occasion, I came down very low and started shooting at a row of German heads that had appeared along the top of a parapet. They shook me a little by answering back and I could distinctly hear the popping sound of small arms fire flashing past my ears. Our success appeared to be mainly due to the enemies being so startled by the audacity of our attack and bombardment that they could not bring themselves to throw at us uh, any very heavy fire. The sop with one and a half Strutter. Strutter. Strutter (laughs) came into its own. I know that's what
3: I've written, isn't it?
2: (laughs) Its performance and manoeuvrability near the ground being good and the chief danger that we had to face was from our own artillery barrage. When we shut off our engines for a moment, we could clearly hear our own shells rumbling past our ears with a noise that sounded like a succession of trains passing through a tunnel.
3: Yeah, the one-half strategy, it's not powerful enough for to, uh, at altitude, but low down, it's fast enough, it's good enough for this task. Yeah, so, better, you know... So basically, is there a German counterattack attack coming? And if there is, you just dive down, your machine gun, you use small twenty-pound bombs, that kind of Cooper bombs, that kind of thing. Um, now, uh, what else is uh, happening now? What what do, what else, What do they need? The, the 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 fighting's going on. So, what do they need? They still need well photography and artillery observation. We've said this
2: time and time and time again how important that is. Now, the crippling losses of the ROC... Therefore, continued throughout May, and eventually almost every RFC and RNAS mess was hit hard. And uh, this is Captain Ewart Garland of 10 Squadron RFC. Poor old Lorimer and his observer were brought down by Archie this morning, both killed, crashed our side of the lines. We buried Lorimer and Osborne. Machines were taken off and landing at our aerodrome. It seems fitting to see and hear machines when burying an airman. Poor little Weeks crashed into trees on the edge of of the aerodrome when coming into land on practice night flying. Burst into flames. Finny. Watson got lost. (laughs) Watson got lost night flying. Crashed miles away but not hurt. We buried Weeks today. I was a pallbearer as yesterday and our machines were flying above as if looking at the scene. Directly we got back from the funeral. Bulmer and I went up. And we're three hours doing a shoot for six-inch howitzers.
3: Uh, that was a bit insensitive to me. I shouldn't have made that gag. I uh, apologise for that. But what that
2: does show is, is, you know, in amongst death, their duties go on. You know, they come back from a funeral straight up yeah
3: but uh, they wouldn't have been human if they, if they if they didn't who would <laughs> think of yourself as a as a young some serving say say you were in the RFC who would you blame for what's happening well i'd blame everybody but <laughs> i think they uh, they
2: nurtured some antipathy towards the staff officers yeah. that they knew were ultimately responsible for sending them up time after time to photograph seemingly minute changes in the German defences. And uh, one of our old favourites, 2nd Lieutenant Charles Smart, was given a very rare opportunity to let the staff see what it was like far above the trenches. And this is what 2nd Lieutenant Charles Smart of 5 Squadron says.
3: Off we went with an intelligence officer in each machine. My passenger, Staff Captain McLeod, complete with his DSO, MC and Red tabs. Macleod knew nothing about aerial gunnery and had never seen a Hun machine in his life. In fact, he'd only been up in the air once before, so I couldn't expect very much from him. He means as a rear gunner. We had no sooner got well, oh, actually, rear gunner, it's a B2C probably, so it's uh, four in front. We no sooner got well over the lines when six Huns swooped down on us from nowhere, and a rare mix up followed. The Huns were, of course, two to one, so we at once turned west and made a running fight of it. A a Hun settled himself on my tail and started shooting. I just threw my old floating fort about as though it was a scout, finishing up with a dive of about 130 miles per hour. McLeod is a very stout fellow, but an awful fool... "'When I got in the dive, the Hun was still sticking to us and shooting. "'I looked over my shoulder and McLeod was sitting with a "'what do I do next?' expression on his face. "'I jerked the throttle back so that he could hear and yelled, "'Shoot, you told fool, shoot!' "'He then got busy with his gun and fired straight through our own rudder post.' Fortunately for us, five of our triplanes, that sop with triplanes, turned up just in the nick of time and we got away. It was a close call and I'm afraid we should have been dead meat if the scouts hadn't turned up and saved us. We went to dinner at Corps headquarters at night. McLeod related the details of the fight with great gusto, saying nothing about the rudder incident. Of course I did not let him down, but no more amateur observers for me if I can help it. Wow, Um, that used to happen a lot because you're going dagger, 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 tracking the 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 German plane, and of course (laughs) you've got your rudder just behind you. And the British scouts
2: helped when they could, but the overarching demands of the RFC offensive doctrine meant that they simply couldn't be everywhere. They continue to fly offensive patrols deep behind the German lines, seeking out the German scouts and army cooperation aircraft before they could get to
3: the vital areas above the lines. Now, why? Why is there a, this problem? Uh, why, why can't they ju- just uh, patrol and control the air? What, what is it about air warfare that makes it difficult?
2: Well, uh, it's three-dimensional. Uh, it's difficult, if not impossible, to police a battlefield of not just breadth and depth but also height. Cloaking clouds and mist further complicated the issue, allowing the German scouts to frequently break through to prey
3: on the vulnerable British reconnaissance aircraft. Hence the casualties. So after 4th of May, the attention of high command, where does that switch to, Gary? Where, where, what's what's going on?
2: Well, it switches to the Flanders area, where a new major offensive was planned. So in, in effect, the ARIS operations in the Bullochort sector became once again a diversionary operation, to conceal the true nature of the Allied
3: plans. So at the start, it had been to conceal uh, Nivelle's offensive, and now it's uh, concealing, uh, diverting from uh, the Eeps. Uh, uh, what, what becomes Third Eeps or Passchendaele?
2: Yeah, I mean Haig would have his way and launch a great offensive, bursting out of the Eeps salient, uh, Ypres oh. salient, as he'd always craved, and and it was here his real strategic objective. What later. are they going? What are they? Well, the German submarine bases that plagued the Admiralty and the great rail junction of Roulers—they're—they're uh, they're not far behind the German lines.
3: Now, um, when when when, they're, when, they're, when you're moving air, aerial units about, I mean, you, you're going to concentrate your air, air, air your squadrons for the new offensive. But what happens if you move certain well-known squadrons, uh, like for instance, fifty-six squadron? If you move that straight away to the Flanders area. What what does that make it apparent to the Germans? Well, it would act as
2: a sort of moving finger to direct the Germans' attention to the area of the next offensive. Instead. They were kept on the Arras front to try to fool the enemy that
3: it remained the focus of British plans. Now, what's the result of that? Well, one of the results of that is uh, is that the, the, the Arras is the, la- the final arena where we uh, we have uh, someone who's been a, a bit of a hero of ours in, in many ways. Uh, there are the, the brave our Captain Albert Ball. He's uh, he's killed on the 7th of May uh, 1917. Um Uh, He'd he'd get a posthumous uh, Victoria Cross on the 3rd of June Um how many? What was his score? That he uh, score. I mean, he, he did. It he was like a league table. Sometimes. Well, the score it, it really mattered
2: so much to him, and in effect, that's what lured him to his death. It was in the region of about forty victories.
3: Yeah, it's it's difficult. So they they changed the sort of criteria for a victory, but about forty would be about right. He was buried with uh, full military honors by the Germans. Uh, they respected it at Annoleuin, uh, and uh, one of the interesting things is uh, a lot of people. Uh, contrast. Uh, well, it's just that the Germans made. Uh, they, they treated him fairly. They, 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 they respected him as an opponent. And uh, I think that's quite. Uh,
2: now, Ball might have been dead, but the RSC had little or no time to grieve. For the Army Cooperation Squadrons, the same old priorities and requirements endured. There couldn't be any sort
3: of let up in their ceaseless yeah, campaign. No, because they're still fighting on the ground at Arras while they're on their diversionary operation now. So uh, I'm going to be Lieutenant Charles Smart again. Uh, he takes off with an air mechanic Smith in his RE eight. Sorry, yeah, it was RE eight. It was a rear gunner then.
2: Well, especially uh, if he shot the rudder.
3: Yeah, he, he's uh, he's changed uh, changed. Um, Change plans. It uh, was originally in B2Cs, but yeah, he'd changed by then. On the 8th of May, silly old me, that's what you say. Silly old you. you and I
2: just said stutter.
3: And you laughed like a drain. Yeah, I did. That was quite funny. Especially I just, as I've I'm being
2: magnanimous. It. Magnanimous in victory. So this is what Second Lieutenant Charles Smart <laughs> of five squad was That was our says. cricket.
3: I've just had a reunion in my cricket club. Our motto was dignity and defeat, outrageous arrogance in victory. <laughs> What a splendid motto that was. Yes. Ah, Tell us what you say, Lieutenant Charles in... <laughs> Smart. <laughs> oh, sorry, yes. We had to go quite a long way over, so we, so we made up a, a strong party and flew in formation, three machines taking photos and two acting as an escort. We had got just as far, uh, as far over as we were going when 12 Hun scout machines came right through us. A real ding-dong strap followed. A hun dived at the machine I was guarding, and I had to do something, so I pushed my nose down with the engine full on and dived at him, firing my gun li- like hell. At the same time, a hun dived at me, and my observer engaged him with the rear gun. My airspeed indicator only registers up to 140 miles per hour, and when I looked at it, the needle was struck right against the side, so he must have been doing some. Go in some, rather. Down we swirled for about 2,000 feet, both guns firing and making no end of a noise out of both ends. You often make a hell of a noise out of both ends, don't you, Gary? And anyhow, my machine, not giving you chance to answer, made it so hot for both Huns that they broke off the fight and cleared off east. Our other machines were all engaged, one by four Huns at a time, and there was no end of shooting going on. The Huns got more than they expected. One went down in a spinning nosedive but managed to pull out after falling a good 3,000 feet. Right in the middle of the show, one of the Huns fired a white light and off they all cleared into the east, leaving us cock of the walk. We then completed our job and came home. It was a glorious fight. I've never been through anything quite so exciting. Machines were whizzing about all over the place like mad swallows. The air resounded with a pop, pop of machine guns and tracer bullets could be seen flying in all directions. No one in our crowd was hit, but the machines were pretty well shot about. I only got two bullets through my planes, these wingy things. We now call ourselves the Circus, and rightly so, for have not five RE-8s engaged twelve Huns on their own patch and licked them hollow?' Aircraftman Smith behaved splendidly through the show He just sat on his seat like a block of wood And fired his gun like steam As long as there was anything to fire at It's strange how little fear enters into one during a fight. I never thought of being hurt My only desire was to kill a German And I feel sure I would have rammed a Hun machine If I could have gotten near enough to do it As for handling a machine One can do simply anything when there is a scrap on you cannot compare fighting on the ground with fighting in the air. The two are are in about the same ratio as tiddlywinks and big game shooting for excitement. Perhaps I should not say this if I had been at a bayonet charge. Mm, perhaps he shouldn't say that, but uh, it, <coughs> it,
2: it's interesting, Pete, as you sit there choking. You you like to walk, don't you? I do. And you're a cock. So you, you are in fact a cock of the walk too.
3: Okay. yeah thank you Gareth. that's high praise coming i from waited you.
2: ages to say that have yeah. the re8s were indeed a very different proposition to the b2e's that Fire squadron had been flying for so long they certainly had defects but at least they offered some realistic hope of survival if correctly handled now at this point we're going to take a short break
1: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. For
2: the British scout squadrons, the situation in the air was beginning to offer a more uh, hopeful countenance, as if somehow the tide had turned. It was a combination of the arrival of the new types of aircraft... Yeah but also the departure on leave of the dreaded Manfred von Richthofen, the inevitable German casualties and the accumulated fatigue that was now spreading through the seriously outnumbered German Air Force.
3: Yeah, uh, things are getting a bit easier. uh, And uh, more and more of the RFC and RNAS pilots were able to just get the flying time, the basic experience, the combat experience, and they, that that that's gradually changes and, and means that they're more likely to shoot down German planes. They become a more fearsome proposition in the air.
2: Yeah, as they gain in experience, their air vision, as it, it was known,
3: improved, and they began to see aircraft that previously they'd they'd have missed. Yeah, this is this air vision thing is amazing. You, know, you just don't see things. Uh, an experienced pilot will say, oh, "There's somebody over there. Somebody over there. There's three, there's three up there." Uh, whereas the the new pilot. Won't. They, 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 they just won't. And, and, and they don't see the skies as being empty anymore. Uh, and that, that gives them lots more opportunities for action uh, to, to, to intercept German aircraft. Because they see them and can see them early and they can manoeuvre to ambush them. It's all quite exciting stuff. Uh, what else is happening?
2: Well, there's now an improving supply of new British pilots stepping brightly into the shoes of the dead, uh, the exhausted and the mentally shot. Now, one such young press on pilot was uh, Flight Sub Lieutenant Bernard Ellis, and uh, this is what Flight Sub Lieutenant Bernard Ellis of the 1st Naval Squadron RNAS says Last night I drove two down and, with the help of another man, crashed a third. It was a glorious scrap. I fought one down 5,000 feet and eventually saw him off. Not crashed, but driven down. Then I found six on my towel so the only thing to do was to fight them until something happened. Luckily the something was another of my lot and while he was there I drove another hun down. Then my partner had a gun jam and I had four to keep going till another of my lot turned up at which three of the four huns thought fit to go. This other man dived on the remaining hun and pumped quite a lot into him and drove him below me so as my partner had drawn off I attacked and finished off the unfortunate Hun who crashed. Then we were at 5,000 feet, 10 miles the wrong side of the lines, and had arches the whole way home. I found I had one strut nearly shot through, and two hits from arches, one within half an inch of my petrol tank. It's a great war, isn't
1: it?
3: Now, for a young lad, I mean, he's a callow young lad, isn't he? He's just callow, you know, wet behind the ears or whatever you call it. And for him, what what is war to him? Well, for him, it's still a game.
2: Death and maiming was something that happened to other people. Extras in their grand adventure story.
3: Yeah, they're the hero of their own sort of film or story or yeah. whatever, yeah. Yeah, it's
2: all happening around them, not to them.
3: Now, um... The the, the, the the Germans, are they oblivious to what's going on in
2: Flanders? Or? No, they catch on to the British change of emphasis away from the Arras front as the offensive preparations in Flanders became more and more obvious. Slowly, the skies above Arras emptied of the uh, predatory German albatross as they began to transfer their jesters to the north.
3: Now, the next quote is one of my favourites because uh, you could just imagine that uh, it's getting easier in the, up in the skies for the British and... Uh, how, how do you think the scouts react? The, the, the scouts, are, everything's easier. The scouts, are, they've got a lot more freedom. What do they try and do?
2: Well, they uh, they spend quite a lot of their time trying to scare their army cooperation colleagues into an early grave.
3: Yeah, I mean, one of the people who was... Most guilty of this is <laughs> Edward Mannock, who, uh, although he himself suffered badly from nerves, he seemed to have no bloody insight into uh, the sufferings of others. Uh, and uh, this is a splendid quote from you, uh, from Mannock, uh, Second Lieutenant Edward Mannock, who's Fourth Squadron.
2: The Huns seem to have been transferred to the Eastern Front. We roam all over Hunland without seeing an Iron Cross although their archie devils are just as accurate as ever. Went out with Thompson this evening, looking for scalps, but nothing doing. Amused ourselves by dodging about the low clouds and frightening the engine out of sundry crawling quirks doing artillery work. Great sport. You come down vertically at approximately 160 per hour on a poor unsuspecting observer and bank away to the right or left when almost cutting off his tail. You can almost hear him gasp, they're always pleased to see us about, though, and they forgive a little skylarking occasionally. Oh, just uh,
3: well, well, I remember I, uh, some of the people we've had quotes for during this, this podcast series. Uh, uh, do you, how do you think, uh, just to name some Major Alan Dore, uh Captain Bernard Rice, Captain Hewitt Garland, Captain Eric Routh, uh, Lieutenant Charles Smart, how do you think they'd react to the line? Oh,
1: life? I think
2: they'd have
3: laughed
2: like drains. They'd have been <laughs> Terribly amused by manics
3: antics? Not. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> now, um, the, the, now. Well, let, let's. We're coming to the end of our, our podcast, and, this oh. and Well, but we're going to summarise. We, we're going to have some blather at the end. Uh, blather. Uh, blather. Hi. Uh where we just discuss. Um, what what we've been talking about in, I don't know how many episodes it's been, dozens it seems like. But uh, the, the myth of bloody April, the, bl- the bloody April, is very powerful. What what's the what's the myth? Encapsulate it for me, Gary, in a few words. Well, it's uh, deceptively simple.
2: Brave young British pilots of the Royal, Royal Flying Corps, with just a few hours training, were sent up daily to face the Red Baron and his ruthless gang. <coughs> excuse me, of merciless German aces. <laughs> The dreaded flying circus, outnumbered, lacking even basic flying skills, outgunned and flying totally obsolescent aircraft. The young boys of the RFC went to their deaths due to the blind stupidity and intransigence of their commanders. They died like the men on the ground, as sacrifices to the doctrine of the offensive at any cost.
3: And that is the myth. That encapsulates the bloody April myth, and it's nearly all bollocks except for the sacrifice a bit. Uh, uh, but it, it's, it's that legend's vital to the
2: uh, the sentimental view of the Great War. It's it's a common theme it shares with other popular myths. It in that it's that of. Innocence destroyed in futile attacks carried out for no logical reason against an impregnable foe.
3: Yeah, what what it is, is the protagonists have to be seen as victims. Victims of war, victims of society at general. Um, Is that true? Is that element true?
2: No, the pilots and observers of the Royal Flying Corps flying over Arras were not helpless victims, cast there by some casual whim of cruel fate. Well, what were they then? Well... (laughs) they were there as the eyes of the supreme british weapon of battle in the great war the artillery
3: yeah we you've got to remember and this is what the air battle is not a battle on its own it's driven it's dominated entirely by what's happening on the ground to the troops on the ground and and that's why the missions are flown the lives risked and the casualties accepted um On the Western Front, could you have an offensive without without harnessing the awesome destructive power of the Royal Artillery?
2: Oh, of course not. It was the guns that blasted away the German barbed wire and trenches, sought out their headquarters and the fulcrum of their communications, the guns that destroyed or subdued the German batteries, the guns that provided the creeping barrages that chaperoned the infantry across the open wastes of no man's land, and it was the guns that provided an almost impenetrable wall of bursting shells in front of captured positions to thwart any attempted German counterattacks. The Royal Flying Corps existed primarily to serve those guns by aerial photography and artillery observation. So
3: the real story behind Bloody April is one of selfless heroism in a greater cause, the greater cause of the Allied offensives, a willingness to fly obsolescent aircraft over the lines, knowing the risks that they were taking, uh, in order to carry out their duty to the much larger men, uh, numbers of men who were... Great risk on the ground during an offensive, so that sums up that many side. of
2: whom were larger than them
3: yes they were a lot larger I mean some quite junky um now, but somebody else needs some recognition because we we're, we're, we're we try and avoid using the word enemy here we and we're supposed to look at both sides of the coin fairly
2: yeah, so let's refer to the German air force, Manfred von Richthofen and his men were genuine heroes. Fighting and risking everything in the cause of their country, Richtofen is often denigrated by people who didn't
3: understand the air war. Now, there's a perfect example here from Second Lieutenant Walter Wood of Twenty-Nine Squadron, very new to the air, and and he's writing home to his dad, and he gets everything wrong, doesn't he? He just he, he just doesn't know what's going on. He says this: "This count Richtofen you mentioned, Dad, is nothing to worry about." He will soon be brought down. Believe me, every machine of ours he has brought down has been a slow, old artillery observation machine, practically incapable of defending itself. Now, what's wrong with that? hes, he's right. A lot of his victims were artillery observation uh, machines. What—what what have you got to say to that? How do you answer this? This—this. This?
2: Well, firstly. It, it Richthofen was doing the same as we were doing. The German Air Force were trying to do the same as we were. And they were trying to deny us the ability to see from the air. It wasn't about the scouts. Uh, It's about the Army Cooperation aircraft, because um, they could call in artillery that would kill far more Germans uh, than a scout ever would. So, and and again, we talked about the aces of the air and, and, you know, uh, always from above, never from below. They all had doctrines. And uh, they weren't knights errant of the air. They were there to kill. It was kill or be killed.
3: Absolutely. And uh, th- 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 there lot of been, been a lot of mean-spirited efforts to denigrate R- rick to say that his k- kills were easy, that they're fraudulent, that he's little more than a murderer, preying on defenceless prey, caddish, uh... uh and that he had henchmen who spoon-fed his, uh, his victims. But uh, what you're saying is that that's not true. It, it, they're all murderers. Not murderers, but, well, yeah, they're, they're all people who kill absolutely ruthlessly.
2: Yeah, I mean, and again, we, we discussed this. The Germans had a far better system of counting victories than we did. So if, if you know, if some of our aces, the numbers that have been attributed to them are questionable, Um there's not, there's never any, no real doubt anymore as to the identity of the victim. With Richtofen, his victory list has now been pretty well confirmed by modern researchers.
3: It has, not us, not us, Gary, not us. No, uh, uh, almost every. Uh, Claimed kill not all of them in fact we mentioned this in one of our podcasts uh, uh Mac- um, mccudden was one claimed victim and he flew away he escaped uh now what's rick doffin's job to sweep the allied observation aircraft from the air and he did that to the best of his abilities and, and he does that because he knows the photographs the clock code uh, corrections that's to bring Massive fire down on a counterattack. Their own course. They they they, uh, they guide unprecedented concentrations of British shells. Um, and this is the point I was trying to make. His
2: enemies, the Army Cooperation airmen, they may not have killed directly, but their hands were metaphorically steeped in the blood of hundreds, if not thousands, of German soldiers. That was why Richthofen hunted them down, because they were the real enemy. They, they bring in his own call and thousands die.
3: Yeah, uh, well, yeah, yes. Um, so he and uh, the, the leading German scout pilots, they're, 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 they're supreme practitioners of defensive aerial fighting, fighting to the very best of their considerable abilities in the course of, uh, of their country, Germany. Um, do they get away with it? Unfortunately, most paid the inevitable
2: penalty for continually fighting against the odds in skies, which were increasingly full of British aircraft. Hans Lubert, killed on the 30th of March
3: 1917. Carl Emil Schaefer, died in action 5th of June 1917.
2: Carl Ullmanroder, was shot down and killed on the 27th of June 1917.
3: Kurt Wolfe, died on 15th of September 1917.
2: Werner Voss was killed on the 23rd of September 1917.
3: Erwin Bohm died in combat 29th of November 1917. Adolf von Tutschek was shot down and killed on the 15th of March 1918. And the greatest of all, Manfred von Richthofen himself, broke all his own rules, as we've discussed before, and was uh, duly perished on the 21st of April 1918. One did survive. Who's that? Well, ironically, it was the wild
2: Lothar von Richthofen, who, unlike his cautious brother, survived the war, only to die in a peacetime flying accident in 1922.
3: I think he was flying as film star, star somewhere. Uh, yeah. Um, now, as I think we think they're heroes, um, most of them by any standards, uh, and uh, we applaud their achievements on on the cause of their country. Sadly, it's against our country, but still you have to recognise that they were doing a good job.
2: Yeah, and remember, one more factor. Richtofen and the other German aces killed their victims in the hot blood of aerial combat.
3: Yeah, well, (laughs) whereas uh, our heroic British Army cooperation uh, pilots and observers, they in a sense, they're killing in cold blood. Uh, and, and as I said, keep just need to keep re-emphasising the point you made earlier. They're killing thousands of German infantry, German artillerymen, uh, via the medium, not directly, but via the medium of the guns of the Royal Artillery. So, well, well let's talk a bit about them. To, to Take me through why we admire them so much, these Army cooperation pilots. Well, these men who
2: took off day after day in their clearly obsolescent army cooperation aircraft. They're the real British heroes of the aerial campaign that formed the backdrop to the Battle of Arras.
3: Yep, they knew what they were doing and why. And we've had quotes during this thing that show that clearly. People like Charles Smart, Garland and the rest of them, they understood the appalling risks that they were running. Uh, And they're more than aware of the grisly nature of the near inevitable death that awaited them in the skies burning to death in a falling aircraft was was the the most dreaded yeah they keep on don't they
2: they keep on taking off time after time after time many suffered the deaths that haunted their worst nightmares
3: well, I suppose others last months until a luck run, finally runs out or their nerves give way and, and they have to be sent home exhausted to try and recover. Numbers killed, are they large, really? Well, they're not population? per
2: se, but the percentages, they're terrifying.
3: Now, overall, between January and the end of May, the RFC lost some 708 aircraft that's during the Arras campaign if you like of which an incredible 275 were shot down in April total casualties for the 5 months were 1014 of which 473 were dead 317 wounded and 3 3- 224 were prisoners of war is that right does that add up to that
2: uh, yeah that's uh, that's a lot now even with the further massive expansion of air fighting in 1918 it was only in the last three months of the war that this scale of loss was exceeded.
3: Yeah, the, the September October is really big for casualties uh, in nineteen
2: eighteen. So how does that compare to the British Army casualties in well, Arras?
3: Let's uh, so uh, total casualties. Remember, were one thousand and fourteen. So uh, so no, you tell me. So uh, how many uh, how many uh, casualties killed, wounded, prisoners for April and May? do we have say first army under general uh, general horn how many do they have is it uh, more than 1014 46828 third army under allenby
2: 87226 fifth army under gough 24608 now that's a staggering total of 158660 of which some 150000 casualties were directly attributable to the Arras Offensive.
3: Now, so what we're saying is the casualties suffered by the Royal Flying Court pale away into insignificance against the backdrop of wholesale slaughter uh, on the ground. But there is a point... What about that wholesale slaughter? Well,
2: what- <laughs> I think what you're you're referring to is that it would undoubtedly have been far worse if the airmen had not carried out their duty in the skies above them.
3: Because the, there would have been German batteries, German machine guns, but there weren't because they were destroyed by the Royal Artillery, guided by the Royal Flying Corps. Um, was the Battle of Arras just a to- the last element of the myth, was it Was it mad? Was it stupid? Was it fought for no reason?
2: No, there were very, very good military reasons for doing so. It was part of the Allied strategy in a global war to the death against a strong, modern, industrial nation-state, blessed with reserves of men to mobilise a war against a Germany that had by no means reached the end of a rope in 1917.
3: Yep, such a, ba- a battle could could never be postponed indefinitely uh, just to await the arrival of the next generation of aircraft. You can't. You can't say to Hague, I don't want to attack yet because uh, our aircraft, we haven't replaced the BATCs. We want to wait for the SE-5s. How do you imagine Hague or Nivelle or the politicians would have reacted? But it's- even
2: if you do wait, it's your point about the, the dual roller coasters. Even if you wait and you're in the ascendancy for a time, the the enemy react to that and uh, you know they have very soon become obsolescent so you can't wait you've got to use what you've got
3: so the rfc they may not have been ready in material terms but they rose to the challenge that's what we admire about them isn't it that
2: yeah they carried out their duty and they suffered the inevitable casualties in the service of the guns that would one day bring victory to the allies on the western front.
3: So we're saying them uh, that they the, the the and the young german aces that tried so hard to hold them back. They, they they all deserve our unstinting admiration. And 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 we we genuinely feel that, don't we? We we do admire these lads both sides. We do.
2: And and You know, we hope that our podcast will be a small part in the process of recognising the sacrifices of the Royal Flying Corps, which were incurred in making an outstanding contribution towards winning the war, where in the end it always had to be won, on and above the Western Front.
3: So hope you've enjoyed the series uh i don't know what's next uh we're, we're we're planning new series all the time but that this has been for us a humdinger we've really enjoyed it and uh and i hope you'll think about buying my book bloody april uh which is as I, it's cheap as chips these days you can get it off amazon for pennies uh and uh and i hope you enjoy it
2: and uh as i don't have a book yet um perhaps you'll consider buying our joint venture uh, Laugh or Cry, which is out in November.
3: Yeah, which might be when this is out. I'm not sure when this is out. Cheers, Gary. Cheers, Pete. Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, blah. us, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, blah. Visit www.buymeacoffee.com www. 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 backslash pg. MH. Or visit www.blah,
2: blah, 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 blah. And we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
2: Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com pgmh or consider subscribing to the podcast for only two pounds per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content you can find links for both on our facebook and twitter accounts sounds great doesn't it